Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. format of the meeting will be the 10-minute speaker will speak on the second tradition, followed by our information break. The main speaker who will, sp- who will speak for 25 minutes, followed by our anniversary celebrants. Our 10-minute speaker is Amanda. Thanks. Hi, I'm Amanda. I'm an alcoholic. Um, okay, tradition two. This is the long form. For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Um, I want to thank Heidi for asking me to speak. It's pretty cool. Um, So the simplest, most easiest explanation for the group conscience is we take a vote, (laughs) you know. And um, But as with all AA principles, there's a whole lot more to it. Um, Speak into the microphone. Lower. Um, I'm a lot shorter than you think. (laughs) Um, So we take a vote. You know, if if um, if you've been around, you know, in November we voted in Heidi as our new overall chair, and um, I think I think she had to get 51% of the vote, 51 plus. You know, same thing with uh, Parrots and I co-chair the Thursday night meeting. We got voted in. You guys came, you voted, and. and that's that. But the group conscience is what it is. It's a collective conscience of the membership. Um, and what I didn't know what a con- I knew what a conscience meant, but I looked it up anyway. Um, and what it is, it's the sense of a moral goodness of one's own conduct, intentions, or character, together with a feeling of obligation to do the right thing. So as a group, it's a sense of the moral goodness of the group's own conduct, intentions, or character together with a feeling of obligation to do to do right or do good. Um, you know, and, and, and how it is described is the group conscience is the voice of the group's higher power expressing himself. Um, you know, and I'll explain a little bit of the 12 and 12. I have no experience being an old-timer. I have, I'm sober July 30th, 2000. I had eight and a half years. Um, and in the 12 and 12, it discusses bleeding deacons and elder statements. And um, the bleeding deacon is... Um, I could be a bleeding deacon, actually, um, who is uh, convinced the group cannot get along without him and who is consumed with self-pity. Um, totally. And, um, you know, but I, I love this line. It says that nearly every old-timer in our society has gone through this process to some degree. Um, and then there's the elder statement, uh, elder statesman, the true voice of AA. Um, they are the ones who see the wisdom of the group's decision, who holds no resentment over his reduced status, whose judgment, fortified by considerable experience, is sound, and who is willing to sit quietly on the sidelines, patiently awaiting development. They are the real and permanent leadership in AA. Um, 
they do not drive by mandate, they lead by example. And another way, another quote that I found was they act for us, but they don't boss us around. Um, you know, and how this come about, there's, an, there's a story in the, in the 12 and 12, but Bill was offered a job at Towns Hospital to be a lay therapist. Um, he was going to get a nice office and a cut of the profits. And um, he said, let me think about it, but he was pretty sure he was going for the job. And when he was thinking about it on the train ride home, he was thinking about him and Lois being financially hard up, you know, Lois, you know, killing herself at the department store, coming home, cooking dinners for a bunch of drunks who weren't paying. Um, and then I love he describes it as a flash of divine guidance. You know, he hears a voice, and this voice is, is, is saying a line pulled out of the Bible, the, uh, the laborer is worthy of his hire. And, and to him, it was like, that's my answer. I'm taking this job. And he goes home, and he shares it with a meeting a uh, group of guys in his basement. It was his, his meeting night, and he shares it, and the guys are like, absolutely not. You can't do this. You know, and the reasons was that you can't get paid for sharing our message that we're giving for free. You can't professionalize this. And you can't tie this thing to any hospital or anything like that. And, and so, no. And the, the great thing I love about this experience is that Bill, his, it ends with him saying, I listened and I obeyed, and thank God I did. You know what I mean? And the most, and I love that statement because I listened and I obeyed. You know what I mean? And to me, that's like, that's an example of a leader. Um, you know, and out of that, one of the many lessons out of that experience is what we learned is, uh, is that our group conscience, well advised by our elders, will be in the long run wiser than any single leader. You know, because as a human, I am driven by ill motives all the time. <laughs> so I have a sponsor and I come here all the time. Um, I'm fallible. You know, I'm, I'm prejudiced with, with interests and power and prestige. Like, this is in me. And I work on a daily basis to get this out of me. <laughs> um, but now about the leadership. We talked about the elder statements. And then, um, you know, there's elder statements, and then there's the people that do service for the group. Um, you know, and even these people, they act for us, but they don't boss us. Um, and people who take service commitments, they act in the common welfare and, and the best interests of the group. Um, not ranting and raving um, and, and looking for change and stuff like that. And I found this article in the grapevine. And... Um, I forgot what it's called, so ask me later. Um, and I'll read from it. It just says, A leader in AA service is a man or a woman who can personally put principles, plans, and policies into such dedicated and effective action that the rest of us want to back him up and help him with his job. When a leader power drives us badly, we rebel, but when he too meekly becomes an order taker, he exercises no judgment of his own. Um, he really isn't a leader at all. So there's like a balance. Um, and, and what I think about, like I've chaired a couple of meetings um, you know, I've participated in a couple of business meetings, and what happens is, like, we need to make decisions on the spot. You know, this decisions about where to put the literature to do we cut this guy off who's sharing inappropriately and not on the topic. Um, and, um, and this article suggests that um, using careful discrimination and soul-searching is the true leadership must always try to exercise when making these spot decisions type thing. Um, so good leadership originates planned policies and ideas for the improvement of our fellowship and its services, but in new and important matters, it will nevertheless consult widely before taking decisions and actions. You know, and I, I keep thinking about my experience doing the Thursday night with parrots. You know, we're there. We're not, we're not governing the meeting, you know, as much as, much as that, that sounds fun, but we're not. Um, and, you know, we lead the meeting. 
Um, we don't judge anyone's conduct. We don't issue any orders. If someone doesn't show up for a service commitment, we just fill it so the meeting can run. Like my job and my responsibility is to make sure that that meeting is running, that it's welcoming to the newcomer, and that their newcomer is taken care of, and that's the end of it. Um, I'm to follow the script, I follow the format, and um, and even with with um, you know with the format. I was talking with Heidi yesterday. She gave me a great idea. Um, our format and our script wasn't like someone just didn't write that overnight and said, here, read this. It was developed over time through group conscience and experience. And um, I'm an article junkie. There was another article um, that's, that compares the group to uh, an individual AA member taking personal inventory. Like, as an alcoholic, I have to take a daily inventory, recognize my mistakes, you know, go to God and become willing to have them removed. Like, uh, you know, similar to the group. And... Um, and I'll read this. It says, we believe that every AA group has a conscience. It is the collective conscience of its membership. Daily experience informs and instructs the conscience. The group begins to recognize its own defects of character, and one by one these are removed and lessened. As this process continues, the group becomes better able to receive right direction for its own affairs. Trial and error produces experience, and out of corrected experience comes custom. When a customary way of doing this is definitely proved to be the best, then that custom forms into an AA tradition. And the greater power is then working through a clear group conscience. You know, I've been, I've been going to that beginner's meeting for a long time, and, and over the last couple of years, the script has changed ever so slightly, incorporating, like, when cell phones were running rampant, like, going off, and, you know, we added the, please turn off your cell phones and pages, do not disrupt the meeting. Um, you know, something to, like, why uh, why we need to identify ourselves as alcoholics when we go around the room, you know? Like, over time, these things were added, not for, for no reason at all, but for a particular reason. And, um, you know, and, and just like me as an alcoholic, I have to clear away the wreckage that's within me and the garbage that's within me so I can have a direct contact with God, and, and it's quite similar to the group. Um, you know, and therefore, you know, AA is certain that there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. And, um, you know, like I conform to these principles and these, and these principles because, you know, one, because I may drink if I don't. And, and, you know, I don't want, I love this life and I don't want to drink. And two, because I really want to. You know, and, and this tradition talks about the ultimate authority and, and there's another authority that, um, which is booze, and I love and I and I love this this quote, and I'll close with this. It says we have two authorities, which are far more effective. One is benign, and one is malign. There is God, our Father, who is very simply says, "I am waiting for you to do my will." The other authority is John Barleycorn, and he says, "You better do my God's will, or I will kill you." And sometimes he does. And you know, you know, I'm just another drunk trying to stay sober, and and how I do it is by coming here and passing a message that's welcoming and safe, you know, and and it's that's all I am you know my opinions don't mean anything you know um, my ideas are usually bad <laughs> um, you know I'm just here to stay sober and whatever that means I do it you know and I love that line you know I listen and I obey so thanks Our main speaker tonight is Megan. Thank you. Hi, I'm Megan. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Megan. Whew. 
Um, I'm very grateful to be sober and be here tonight. Thank you, Heidi, for asking me to speak. Um, thank you, Amanda, for a wonderful talk on our second tradition. And um, a little nervous. Um, my sobriety date is December 18th, 1998. My home group is the Young and Wise Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet on Friday nights on the Lower East Side. Everyone is welcome to come. Um, I have a sponsor, and I sponsor women. And um, I don't really know where to begin tonight. Um, I just got back from a trip to California where I grew up. I visited my family, and um, I have to tell you that my relationship with my family today is nothing like it was when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I didn't even really speak to my parents. I didn't really have a whole lot to say to them. Um, I didn't think that they cared about me, which today devastates me that I would think that, but that was my perception, was that they didn't really care. Um, and today I have an amazing relationship with them. I, I talk to them two or three times a week, and I was really excited to go home and to spend a week with them. And I spent some time going through boxes in their basement. And um, I came across photos and journals and, and letters from dating back to probably when I was about 14, 15 years old, all the way through my drinking. And um, it was a pretty painful process honestly, to look through all of that. A lot of memories that I had conveniently forgotten were brought back up again for me. And um, it made me really sad to sit and read these things and look at these pictures and to remember what a sad, lost little girl I was. I mean, I was just lost and confused and sad. And I was looking for love and hope and joy in all the wrong places with all the wrong people, and I was so desperately seeking something that would make me feel okay, because I didn't feel okay, I wasn't okay. Um, I, I really feel like my life took a change in, in fifth grade. Some of us remember the time when our life turned, and some of us don't, but I remember in fifth grade, I remember things happening in fifth grade, and I suddenly realized that I didn't have the friends that I thought I should have, and I didn't have the clothes that I thought I should have, and I didn't listen to the right music, and I wasn't cool enough. And if any of you knew who I really was on the inside, you would all hate me and run from the room. I remember that that is when those thoughts started. And... Um, and I felt like that all through my drinking. And I was just desperately searching for something that would make me feel okay. And the more and more I drank and the more and more I searched, the more I felt like a fake and a fraud. And the more I became terrified that if you really knew who I was, that you would run from the room, that you would not want to have anything to do with me. Um, I, you know, I'm an alcoholic, and I do believe that I've been an alcoholic from the day I was born. You know, alcohol, the alcohol is just a symptom. The way that I think, the way that I perceive the world, the way in which I interpret your actions, the way in which I see things, that is my alcoholism, and that has been with me my whole life. Um, and I just use alcohol to try and, and cure that, to try and, you know, see the world the way that I wanted it to be seen. Um, I don't think I'm really going to share a lot about my drinking because to be honest with you, a lot of it isn't true. I don't know if anyone else has this experience, but I discovered in my first year or two of sobriety that my memories of my drinking were not true. I created reality to fit my needs. And it was terrifying for me to discover that things that I thought absolutely 100% would go to my grave happens, never happens. That's my insanity. Um, I, I will share a couple of things that I have pictures to prove or I have people that back it up. Um, 
You know, I started drinking in high school. When I first came to AA, I thought maybe I'd started drinking too late. I spent my first couple months in, in AA thinking I wasn't a good enough alcoholic. Um, I'm a really big overachiever, and I came here, and I thought maybe I haven't drunk enough. Maybe I haven't gotten to enough trouble. You know, I know that alcohol is a problem, but maybe I'm not good enough for AA even, you know, because I haven't been good enough for anything else, in my opinion. So maybe I'm not good enough for AA. And um, I, uh, you know, I just didn't think that that if I'd started drinking at the age of 16, that was way too late. You know, alcoholics start drinking when they're six, seven, eight years old, not 16. So right away I thought that I would start drinking too late. Um, I'm, I am a college graduate. Somehow, miraculously, I made it through college. I got sober about six months later. So I thought, well, I graduated from college. I can't possibly be an alcoholic. I was coming up with all sorts of excuses and reasons why I didn't belong in AA yet. Um, but, you know, from the very first time I took a drink, I became a daily drinker. And when I got sober, I didn't think that. I thought I had been a daily drinker maybe the last six months of my drinking, maybe. No, I was a daily drinker from the beginning. I was that kid in high school that brought vodka in the, the water bottle to school with the orange juice, drank it in the morning, went home at lunch, refilled it, and came back. That's what I did. And I conveniently blotted all of that out, because if I'm a daily drinker, then alcohol's a problem. And if alcohol's a problem, then I've lost my solution. And I couldn't bear that possibility, so I blocked all sorts of things out. I also, um, when I went to college, I decided that um, maybe I should change some things. Maybe I should quit smoking. Maybe I shouldn't drink anymore. And um, so my memory is, is that I didn't drink my entire freshman year of college. And I lied to people and told them that I'd had a drinking problem in high school and I'd gone to Alcoholics Anonymous and now I was sober. I had never been to an AA meeting, ever. I just knew that they met at the church that I grew up at. That's all I knew. Um, but I couldn't possibly let these college freshmen think that I didn't drink. They needed to know that I was this, you know, tough girl that really had had it hard, and now I was sober. You know, really it was my insides screaming out to me saying, you have a problem. But I didn't hear it yet, you know. And um, on my first anniversary in Alcoholics Anonymous, I shared about this. And I shared about the fact that I had been sober for a year in college and how I had used that as an excuse for not being an alcoholic. And I got home that night and my roommate pulled out some photos of me absolutely obliterated my first weekend of my freshman year at college. I didn't even make it 24 hours. And her recollection is that I drank all the time that year. <laughs> uh, you know, those... Realizing that um, is not a fu- that's not a fun realization. To realize that you are that insane is very, very scary. And it really drove home to me the point of how dangerous my alcoholism is and how I will absolutely twist reality to meet my needs. Absolutely. Um, you know, that same, that same girl that showed me that picture, she and I met um, when we traveled abroad to China. And... Uh, we, there was 11 of us, and it was the first night that we were there, and of course we all went out and got drunk. Um, we were in a very rural area of China, and she and I got drunk, and we started walking together out into the China fields. I love being dramatic, too. My drinking was all about being dramatic. And there we were, you know, in the countryside of China, having such an amazing moment together, totally drunk. Um, and she admitted to me that she had been in Alcoholics Anonymous and that she had been sober about two years, and that this was the first night that she had taken a drink. And I didn't even miss a beat. I said, oh yeah, I was an Alcoholics Anonymous too. <laughs> and I saw this weird look in her eye that now I can only assume is a sort of look of relief, like, oh, I found somebody else who has been in AA and is now drinking. And she went on to talk, she just talked and talked and talked. And what I remember is her saying that she loved the serenity prayer. 
had no idea what that was. I probably just nodded in agreement. And then um, she said that she really loved the spiritual side of the program. She had brought her big book with her and that she really wanted to maintain that part of her life. And she asked me what my favorite part of the big book was. And I said, oh, we must not have had those at the meetings that I went to. (laughs) The sad part of that story is that she didn't say anything. She accepted that answer. She had to have known that I was lying. She didn't say anything. We went on to become really good friends. We lived together my senior year in college. We drank together a whole lot, a whole lot. Um, The miracle is, is that we also lived together in my first year of sobriety, and our relationship did manage to bridge that gap from drinking to sobriety because a lot of my relationships did not bridge that gap. Um, But she's around in my life to help tell me what, what really happens you know, help shed some reality on what my life was really like. Um, You know, so like I said, I was a daily drinker. There's nothing really too exciting in my drinking story. I was a college drunk. I was a high school drunk. I drank a lot. I lied to you about it. I hung out with a different group of people each night of the week so that people wouldn't put it together that I was drinking so much. Um, I was whoever you wanted me to be. I hung out with every crowd that drank, and every night I was someone different depending on what I thought you wanted me to be. I had no idea who I was. I didn't know what I liked. I didn't know what I didn't like. I just knew what you liked and what you didn't like and how I thought I should be. And that is a sad way to live life, and it's exhausting, and it's depressing. And um, that's where I was at when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Nothing big happened. There wasn't a big huge events in my life. I just woke up one day and realized that I was an alcoholic. And I called up a girlfriend of mine and I said, I think I think I have a problem with alcohol. I think I'm an alcoholic. And she said, well, you drink a lot, but you're not in denial about it, so I don't think you're really an alcoholic. <laughs> and luckily, I didn't really listen to her about that. I usually took everyone's advice if they gave it to me, but I... I knew she wasn't right. I knew in the bottom of my heart, I knew that alcohol was a problem. There wasn't any big thing that happened. I just suddenly woke up one morning and I just knew that I was an alcoholic and I was absolutely terrified because what was I going to do now? I was 22 years old. All I knew was drinking. I graduated from college. I was totally lost. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. Come to find out that a lot of 22-year-olds feel that way, but I thought I was the only one that felt lost and confused and terrified. And um, so I went to my first AA meeting, and I sat down in my first AA meeting, and all I remember is crying. I sat down, and I just started crying. And I didn't know why I was crying, but I just sat down and cried. I have no idea what the guy said. I can picture him. I, I can see him there at the front of the room. But I just cried and I cried and I cried. And um, I went to a meeting the next day. And I was a little bit clear-headed the next day. And I remember sitting in there and the overachiever clicked in in me. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. I am going to do this. And I'm going to get up to that podium and I'm going to be able to tell everyone about how I got sober and what a great alcoholic I am and Alcoholics Anonymous. And that overachiever really kicked in. And I called a friend of mine after the meeting and I said, I really, really don't want to drink. I really think AA is the thing for me. I'm going to do this. Can I come to your house because I'm too scared to go home? And because there was alcohol at home. And she said, sure, come on over. And I started driving, and I made it about halfway to our house. And my mind was thinking, go to Carrie's house, go to Carrie's house. And my hands took the wheel and drove me back home. And before I knew it, I had a drink in my hands. And I was floored. 
Up until this point in my life, there was nothing in my life that I had not been able to accomplish. I manipulated and I controlled and I lied and I cheated and I stole to get what I wanted. And I didn't want to drink and I couldn't do it. And I was floored. I couldn't believe it. I can't stop drinking. Here's the ego kicks in. Me? I can't stop. I want to stop. What do you mean I can't stop? And I couldn't stop. I could not stop drinking on my own. Um, I, I called somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous. This woman had given me her phone number, and I thought it was very weird and very creepy that she would give me her phone number. But I had stuck it in my pocket, and I pulled it out, and I called her. And that's God working in my life, because I didn't want to call her. But I pulled her phone number out, and there I was on the phone with her, and I thought she was going to tell me to stop drinking, and she didn't. She said, do you want to stop? And I said, no. She said, are you going to get in a car? And I said, no. She said, okay. And I don't really remember the rest of what she said, but I do know by the end of that conversation, I had dumped the drink out. I had to flush it down the toilet because I had to be dramatic about it. So I remember being on the phone with her, flushing it down the toilet. And that was my last drink. I haven't had a drink since then. And she arranged for people to come meet me the next day. And um, people I had no, I didn't know who they were. Here come strangers to meet me at a coffee shop. And little did I know that this is how Alcoholics Anonymous works. You know, we show up for each other. Regardless of whether I know you or not, I have something in common with you. And I understand your disease. And if you're new, I understand your pain. And I understand your fear. And all of us do, because we've all been there. And there were these two people, and they were there, and they just listened to me, and they took me to an AA meeting, and they weren't judgmental. I thought they were going to judge me. God, how could that girl go and get drunk after going to an AA meeting? They didn't judge me. They were just there to love me and to take me to an AA meeting. Um, after that, I just kept going to AA. I really dove in. I got a sponsor. Um, that first sponsor, it's her voice that I hear in my mind. And there's, there's two things that I always hear her say. She, she would always ask me, did you pray about it? Which used to drive me crazy. But I hear her voice now. Did you pray about it, Megan? Did you pray about it? Um, and she used to always tell me, you can do whatever you want as long as you're willing to accept the consequences. Because I wasn't about to let anyone tell me what to do. You know, I, I, I wasn't going to do what you told me to do. But if you gave me suggestions and then told me, but you can do whatever you want as long as you're willing to accept the consequences, that was a message that I could hear. And I knew that I had a choice. I was either going to follow the suggestions of Alcoholics Anonymous and I was going to get the results that I was seeing in people in AA, or I was going to continue to do it my way and continue to be miserable. And my first couple years of sobriety, I probably did a little weave back and forth, you know, down that line of... Sometimes I took the suggestions, and when I didn't, I suffered the consequences, you know, and I, need, I needed those lessons in my life. Um, I also went to my first young people's conference when I had 17 days. It was New Year's. Um, someone dragged me to this conference, and I walked into the hotel, and there were people everywhere, people my age everywhere. And I remember looking at the person next to me and saying, okay, so where's the conference? And they said, you're there, Megan. This is the conference. And I said, no, 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 all these people must be here for like the hotel drunken dance. I mean, everyone was running around having a great time. And they said, no, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome to your life. You get to have fun in sobriety. And I was absolutely floored. I was going to go for an hour. I stayed for the whole weekend. Um, I met people there that I'm still friends with today. Um, and I got right into service. I immediately jumped into service. Someone got me a position at a meeting, and I joined a young people's service committee. And I haven't stopped being of service in the young people's fellowship since then. And I know that it is something that has absolutely kept me sober over the last 10 years. It has kept me accountable. It has kept me involved. It has kept me passionate and interested in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it has taught me how to be a person out in the real world. 
I've learned all of my people skills, all of my skills that I use at work, all of those things I've learned from those business meetings. You know, business meetings can be scary and they can be awful and they can be uncomfortable, but they have taught me so much about how to work with other human beings because I didn't know how to get along with anybody. I didn't know how to solve a problem with you. I didn't know how to work together. And those meetings taught me all of that. Um, about two and a half months into my sobriety, I, you know, I really thought I, things were going really well. I'd gotten a job. I had a place. I was going to move into this new place with a girl that I had met, and we were friends, and I was excited. I'd made a girlfriend. Making girlfriends for me is very hard, even today. Um, and you know, I'd met this girl, and we were going to move into this house. And um, you know, I, I went to move into that house, and I was attacked and almost killed by a total stranger. And I had two and a half months of sobriety. And a lot of things happened in that 10 minutes in my life. And I'm grateful that today I can stand here and say I'm really grateful that they did happen. I'm grateful that those things happened to me. But I remember one thought was, God, how could you do this to me? I'm doing everything right right now. I'm sober. I'm going to those AA meetings. I'm not drinking. I have a job. How could you possibly do this to me? And today I know that it, thank God it happened in my sobriety. If that had happened and I wasn't sober, I wouldn't be here today. Guarantee you, I would not be here today. Um, I definitely had a spiritual experience. It's my one and only time of having, I don't know that I would call it a white light experience, but it was the first time that I knew that God had my personal interest in mind. He intervened and saved my life, and I don't doubt that, and I have not doubted that once since that happened. Leading up until this point, I definitely believed that God existed, but I didn't really think that he had a personal interest in my life. Um, He made that very clear to me that day. And um, I also learned a lot about Alcoholics Anonymous. I was in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, and there was this EMT, and he was looking down on me, and he... um, He was telling me all these people that were going to meet me at the hospital, social workers, counselors, police, all these people were going to be there. And I said, don't worry, don't worry, it's okay. I'm I'm going to be okay. I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) And he looked at me like I was totally crazy. (laughs) And and I was shocked because it was the first time that I spoke the truth without realizing. I, I didn't know that to be true. It just came flying out of my mouth. I'm going to be okay. I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that statement proved to be so true. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous showed up at the hospital. Alcoholics Anonymous took me to meetings. Alcoholics Anonymous told me that no matter what, even if I wanted to, I didn't have to drink. And Alcoholics Anonymous told me to seek some outside help. And I am so, so grateful for that. Because AA helped me to stay sober, but AA, we're not psychiatrists and we're not doctors and we're not counselors. My sponsor helped me to stay sober. My sponsor showed me the 12 steps of AA. My sponsor took me to meetings. She reminded me to be of service in AA. And she told me, go to the doctor. Go seek that outside help. And thank God I did. And because I was sober, I was able to consistently do that. I was able to consistently show up for counseling and all of those things that I needed along with Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, It turned out to be a two-year court experience for me. Um, I don't wish that on anybody, but AA was there with me every step of the way. AA was in the courtroom with me. AA was sleeping on my couch at night when I couldn't sleep. Um, AA was just there, people I knew, people I didn't know, and it was absolutely amazing. And when I came through all of that, I had about three 
three and a half years of sobriety, and suddenly I was walking down the street, and I, and I felt comfortable. And it was a nighttime, and I, I wasn't jumping at you know, any sound behind me. And I thought, oh my God, I, what they said was true. It really, it really worked. I really stayed sober, and I was stunned. And then I did what maybe any good alcoholic would do. I started doubting whether I was an alcoholic. And I thought, maybe I stayed sober in AA because I needed your help during that time in my life. And I was terrified because by this point I had fallen in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous was my life. I had friendships in AA unlike anything I'd ever dreamed was possible. I had repaired my relationship with my family. I had a self-confidence that I had never experienced before. When I did my first fifth step, it was amazing. There, were, there was nothing on my fifth step that I hadn't told anybody, but I had never told one person everything. And I told that woman everything. And when I was done, I felt whole. And I had never felt whole in my entire life. I didn't feel good. I didn't like the person that I was. I didn't have a pink cloud experience after my fifth step. I was really upset with the reality of the person that I was. But I was whole. And I carry that wholeness with me today. I know who I am inside and out. I know the good things and I know the bad things. I know what I like. I know what I don't like. I know my character defects and I know my assets very well. And those character defects, they continue to come up over and over again. That's why I keep coming back to Alcoholics Anonymous. But at three and a half years, I was terrified. So I got back together with a new sponsor. And she said, well, why don't we go through the 12 steps again? And if you get to the end of the 12 steps and you don't think you're an alcoholic then, you know, maybe you can try some experimented drinking like they talk about in the big book. And I said, okay. I was terrified. And she took me through the big book the way that I now like to take women through the big book. She took me through line by line, word by word. And it was like I had never read it before. And that's been my experience every time I've gone through the steps. New things come out every time I go through. And um, I wasn't even halfway through the first step, and I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew that the way that I perceived the world... I knew the way in which I react to situations in my life. I knew I was an alcoholic, and I was so relieved. Oh, thank God I can stay in Alcoholics Anonymous. Unlike three and a half years earlier, where I was like, oh, no, is this what, you know, am I destined to be an AA? Ugh. No, I was relieved. I was so grateful. Because that meant that I could stay with this thing, this this program, this group of people who had shown me and taught me who I was and had told me that it's okay just to be who I am. I don't have to be anything other than who I am, good and bad. And I don't have to drink today even if I want to. And I still want to sometimes. I'm an alcoholic. The thought crosses my mind. And I don't have to drink today. And I don't have to beat myself up over thinking about it either. I can just let those thoughts come and go just like that and it's um that is an absolute absolute miracle to me and you know where i'm at in my life today my life is nothing like i expected it would be i have found all of those things in my life that i was desperately seeking for and all the wrong people in all the wrong places Um, i have an amazing husband that i met in alcoholics anonymous i have a job today that i love i have a family that um, loves and adores me and i love and adore them and you know and i still have the 12 steps of alcoholics anonymous because i need them every day. You know, I went through the steps the first time, and 10, 11, and 12 are those steps that kind of keep me on maintenance every day. You know, the 10 step completely transformed my life, completely transformed my life. That has given me an even keel in my life that I never thought was possible. Um, But the step that I keep coming back to is that third step, because 
there have been a few times in my life in sobriety that I've actually been able to really, truly, I think, do the third step, really, truly say, God, your will, not mine, be done, really, truly, because I always have little, you know, but only if, if it could just be this way, um, you know, and when I'm really able to say, no, your will, absolutely, and when I'm able to say, please guide me, and then let me, give me the willingness to follow your guidance, because God guides me all the time. All the time he guides me, and all the time I decide, no, that's not really quite what I want. I'm waiting for the guidance that I want to see. I still do that. It's part of my alcoholism. But those times in my life that I've really been able to, to walk through that fear and say, yes, no matter what it is that you want from me, I'm willing to accept it. Incredible, amazing things have happened. So why I'm not able to do that on a daily basis, I have no idea. Why I keep taking my will back, I have no idea, but I do. And I still, but I have these moments in my life that I can look back on and say, gosh, when I really, truly turn my will and my life over and I say, no matter what it is, even if it's not what I want, Please let your will be done and not mine. Amazing things happen. And um, there are some things going on in my life today that I don't like, that I really don't want to accept. And that old alcoholism of I'm not going to accept reality and I'm going to make up reality to meet my needs, that stuff sneaks back into my life. And that's why I have to keep coming back to AA. And that's why I have to work with a sponsor. That's why I have to work with sponsees to help me stay right-sized and to help me perceive the world around me the way that it really is. And you know what? My reality is really amazing. My life is amazing. So why I stick on these few things that aren't going the way I want them to go, I have no idea. But at least it gives me a reason to come back to AA. (laughs) You know? It's it's the reason I'm here. And... um, getting the goodbye sign. So thank you so much for uh, listening to me tonight. Thanks. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.